Today's passages would have been fabulous passages to preach on, uh, and especially the care and attending to the poor, which gets at the heart of Redeemer's shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. I feel like I've preached that one a few times in the last few months. And I was glad last week when Steve decided to preach on uh, the 2 Corinthians 5 passage rather than the gospel because my kind of epiphany came when he read the gospel to us. And so I'm going to break with tradition of preaching from the lectionary for today and preach from the lectionary last week. Just as a refresher, the gospel reading was from Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great storm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, speaking of Jerry Seinfeld, who is just master of observational comedy, I, I love one time that he said, According to most studies, People's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two? Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. <laughs> I'm not sure that's entirely true, but every single one of us has our own fears. And some of them can be really irrational, at least to others. I'm not sure that you, any of you remember the comedian Stephen Wright, but he was known for his lethargic, deadpan delivery of ironic, philosophical, and sometimes nonsensical humor that he once said, a lot of people are afraid of heights. Not me. I'm afraid of wits. <laughs> Personally, I've confessed this before, I have a, a terrible fear of speed bumps which I am slowly getting over. <laughs> but um bump. We of course know that the definition of an irrational fear is someone else's. Just like um, the only kind of minor surgery is someone else's. <laughs> 
You know, but some, some fears are legitimate, and some of them can be just downright terrifying. And make no mistake, terrifying fear, or what George W. Bush may have called terrification, is exactly what the enemy of our souls desires for us. I want to say that again. Terrifying fear is exactly what the enemy of our souls desires for us. And as we sang together last week in this song, um, Our Great God, which is a song that I love because it is so theologically astute. One of the lines reads, our cold and ruthless enemy, his pleasure is our harm. And so I want to say parenthetically, Satan is not neutral or indifferent toward you. He hates you with a burning hatred and destructive hatred and wants nothing more for you than to bring you and everyone you love harm. Ultimately, to lead you away from God and if possible, to destroy you. But terrifying fear. This was the visceral response of Jesus' disciples in a small, storm-tossed boat that in some ways resonates with all of us. Metaphorically, we're all afraid, some of us terrified of the wind and waves that assail our fragile vessels, potentially assaulting our personal lives, our homes, our businesses, and even our nation and the world. Before 2020, pandemic was by and large exclusively the stuff of apocalyptic science fiction. But that has been our reality for 17 months. Added to that on a personal level, we, 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 we deeply fear disapproval, rejection, failure, meaninglessness, illness, and of course, death, our own death or the death or even harm of those we love. As Mark tells the story, after a long day of teaching crowds of people, Jesus needs a break, and he initiates a trip across the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. And although he initiates the trip, he's now in their hands, the group of whom include at least four experienced fishermen. After dismissing the crowd, the disciples, it says, took him with them in their boat. In other words, this is their wheelhouse. But it's not long before a great storm, great here being the Greek word mega, so a mega storm arises. So great that within just a short time, water begins crashing over the gunnels and filling the boat. This vivid narrative gets right to the severity of the situation. Not even these four journeyman sailors can do anything about it. And so they turn to Jesus, presumably because of the power he's already shown in healing the sick and exercising demons. Maybe he can help. And to their absolute astonishment, he's sound asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. And given this, they cry out to Jesus in the midst of their panic and rebuke him for his apparent lack of concern. Teacher, don't you even care that we're dying? And I think what Mark's doing is contrasting the deep, calm sleep of Jesus with the utter panic and destruction and death that's raging around them. And immediately, it says, Jesus rises up, rebukes the wind, 
and tells the sea to shut up and be still. And something significant here, the Greek words for both rebuke and be still are the exact words they'd heard Jesus use against a particularly pernicious demon just a few days before. Throughout the Psalms, especially but all over the Old Testament, we, we read about Yahweh, Almighty God, as the king of land and sea. And here in Mark, Jesus demonstrates that very same authority over nature's causes and effects, just as he'd exercised over demonic powers. The vicious wind that had caused a violent storm on the sea. Jesus rebukes one and silences the other. The result is that the wind, literally in Greek, grows weary. And the sea stills to a great calm. Again, the word great in the, is the Greek word mega there, so a mega calm. So, by just a few words from Jesus, a mega storm becomes a mega calm. Interestingly, the disciples' response to this incredibly dramatic demonstration of Jesus' reign, his kingship, isn't exactly what you'd expect. You'd expect the response of the storm-tossed faithful in Psalm 107, a psalm that we read together in morning prayer last week. They're thankful. And they're joyful, and they praise God's exercise of power on their behalf. Verses 23 through 30 say, Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and he went down to the, and went down to the depths. Their courage melted away. In their evil plight, they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. But the disciples in Mark 4 are decidedly not glad. Jesus has shown godlike authority over the prim this primordial chaos. He's the king of the created order, and yet the immediate response to this demonstration of kingly power isn't joy, it isn't praise, it isn't acclaim, it's fear. Great fear. And there's that word for great again. It's mega fear. And it's at this point that Jesus turns to his disciples and asks two fundamental questions that lie at the heart of this story. Why are you afraid? Do you not yet have faith? And that the disciples respond to these questions by talking amongst themselves rather than speaking directly to Jesus is telling. They're not yet ready, not Yet, do you not yet have faith? They're not yet ready to come down completely on the side of faith. So instead of the mega storm that was turned into a mega calm becoming a sign of mega faith for the disciples, it becomes a source of mega fear. 
Some modern translators and commentators minimize this reaction by talking about their stunned awe or respect for what Jesus had done. But there's genuine fear here. Fear about the meaning of Jesus' action because the disciples at this stage don't really understand it or him. And so they ask each other, who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And even with this kind of unmediated proof before their very eyes, the disciples are fearful, not confident. I say all this so that we can see together that the overshadowing reality of these verses from the fourth chapter of Mark is that of not casual, but sold out and faithful disciples, genuine followers of Jesus who had left everything, who are genuinely overcome with fear. And Jesus' loving yet firm response to them. In this story, the sea, the storm, and the fragile boat that carried Jesus and his followers across the Sea of Galilee offer evocative metaphorical images of our own life journey. The perils of some passages, the profound vulnerability of the craft that bears us on our way, and our intense longing, conscious or not, for the one who calms both us and the storm. And fear is confronted in this story, but not by a sudden burst of courage or resolve on the part of the disciples. In the course of the storm, they never pull themselves together. They don't pull themselves up by their sandal straps. They don't discover inner resources that they didn't know that they had. Rather, it's Jesus who calms both them and the storm with the simple power of his presence with them in the boat. This story is one of two calming the sea narratives in Mark, and it's notable for the stark contrast between the absolute confidence of Jesus and the agonizing fear of the disciples. Literally, Jesus lies asleep, undisturbed, while the disciples respond to the energy of this furious squall by completely falling apart. So this passage doesn't so much challenge us to discover heretofore hidden courage within ourselves as it invites us to simply put our whole trust in the master of wind and wave. And on another level, the bruising storm is a recasting of the watery chaos from which creation is spoken forth by God in Genesis 1, bringing order out of the water's chaos. So Jesus is seen through the lens of this story as doing things reserved exclusively for God Almighty, ordering chaos and overcoming the fear, the force of death, just as he'd done with the demonic forces. He shows godlike superiority over the elements. And from this, we're meant to surmise the plain answer to the disciples' terrified question, who is this? He is God. This story then is about putting our faith in the God who is more powerful than both literal Galilean storms and the storms that rage in our lives. Seems like a long time ago now, but Hunter S. Thompson became internationally known. I'm sorry, I have to adjust this because I know it drives people sometimes crazy when the stole is uneven. 
I didn't. I could not hear a word Steve Angstrom said last week. I think he didn't preach on this passage, but I don't know. I was just paying attention to his stole. Seems like a long time ago now, but Hunter S. Thompson became internationally known in 1967 with a book chronicling the lives of the Hell's Angels. In preparation for the book, he spent a year living and writing with the outlaw bikers, experiencing their lives firsthand. And this experience prompted him to write chillingly, there is no such thing as paranoia. Your worst fears can come true at any moment. Maybe this is why Jesus never says there's nothing to be afraid of. Rather, he asks, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? To help understand this important distinction, imagine this. A young child awakens in the night, terrified at some dream or, or frightened of some monster hiding under the bed or in the closet. And since last Sunday was Father's Day, we'll say that the father rushes in to the bedroom and scoops the little one into his arms and sits in a chair. He caresses her hair, rocks her gently, and then whispers what's likely been whispered since the beginning of time, hush now. There's nothing to be afraid of. But is that true? Is there really nothing to be afraid of? Although we often confuse them, saying there's nothing to be afraid of is a very different thing from saying do not be afraid. The hard truth is that fearsome things are very real. Isolation, pain, loneliness, disease, meaninglessness, rejection, job loss, money problems, professional failure, relational failure, pandemic, disease, and death. All of us fear these things because sometimes they really do happen. Except death. Death always happens. There's still a one-to-one -one ratio on that one. But part of maturing in faith is coming to understand that even though such fearsome things are very real, they do not need to have the last word. They do not need to have dominion over us because reigning over this world of fearsome things is a God who is mightier than they are. Time and time again in scripture, the word is do not be afraid. In fact, it's the most often repeated command in the Bible. Not because there are no fearsome things on the sea of our days, not because there are no storms, fierce winds or waves, but rather because God is with us. To get back to our illustration, instead of saying there's nothing to be afraid of, the whole truth would be for the father comforting his frightened daughter to say, don't be afraid. You're not alone. A man named Job in the Old Testament could have written a book on that. In this story, everything that sane people fear the most happened to him who was, in God's estimation, a thoroughly righteous man. It's a complex and compelling story. And the passage that we read just last week from chapter 38 is near the end of the book. It's God's response to Job's list 
of, of, of complaints about the unimaginable pain and heartache he's endured and is enduring. And what's most distinctive in this passage, I think, is not the soaring rhetorical questions that God asks of Job, but rather the name by which God suddenly refers to himself. Though he's been referred to many times in the story already by the slightly more generic plural noun Elohim, the distinctly personal Israelite name of God, Yahweh, doesn't show up till right here where God finally enters directly into the fray with Job. The God of the whole world, the God whose wisdom and power are supreme over all creation and are evident in the universal works of creation, is not simply a nameless force. He has a name, and this has striking implications. In the third chapter of Exodus, God reveals the name Yahweh to Moses at the point where God calls him to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. The name Yahweh is, is intricately, inextricably tied to the God who redeems the people in trouble, sustains them through the wilderness, and brings them into the promised land. God acts through history in fulfillment of promises made long ago to a particular people with whom God enters into covenant relationship. So it isn't possible to speak of a God who is out there, who is sovereign over the universe without relating to the God who also enters fully into the fray of history and into our individual lives. The God who magnificently created the world, who inherently is sovereign and wise, is the same God by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, who enters into personal relationship with us and in whom we can entirely trust. And in the story of the calming of the sea in Mark 4, he is perfectly revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of God, entering the fray of human experience, ultimately offering himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross, and by his resurrection, inaugurating the means by which God will reconcile all things, all things, including every fear, unto himself. And so the bottom line my word of encouragement to you today is this. The whole truth, the deeper truth that only steadfast and experiential faith in Jesus Christ can teach is that even though there are very real and very fearsome storms in this life, mega storms, they need not paralyze us. They need not have dominion over us. They need not have the last word simply because we are not alone in the boat. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.